Well, December 1st is World AIDS Day, a day to both reflect on those lost, the many millions, 40 million is the estimate around the world since the early 80s, uh, as well as the progress made and the challenges still to be overcome. Uh, It's been since 1988 that this day has been dedicated to raising awareness around the world of the AIDS pandemic and caused by the spread of the HIV infection. And again, there are many things to celebrate these days, uh, but some quick figures for you. The 38 million people worldwide living with HIV now, nearly six who know they have HIV are not receiving treatment. That is an issue. Don't forget, there has been a global pledge to eliminate HIV as a threat uh, by the end of the cent- of the end of the decade, rather. And it doesn't feel like we're getting, or at least necessarily getting there quickly enough. A further 4 million people living with HIV have not yet been diagnosed. The good news is 76% of adults overall were receiving antiretroviral treatment that helped them lead normal and healthy lives. Only 52% of kids, though, living with HIV are getting those same treatments globally in 2021. Uh, So we can tell where the need is. 70% of new HIV infections are among people who are marginalized and often criminalized. So we can see where the need remains when it comes to trying to combat HIV AIDS. Um, it has been more than 41 years. I grew up in the in, in the 80s. So uh, I remember very well those early days of AIDS and the, the fear and the panic and watching friends of my parents who had friends die. Um, it was devastating. Um, But 40 years later, 40 million lives lost. um, And, you know, a lot of the history of that time is starting to fade away because those who lived through that era, often many of them baby boomers, are starting to pass on, uh, those who survived, obviously. And that is the basis of a new community-based oral history project led by researchers at the University of Victoria called HIV In My Day. They set out to collect stories from nearly 120 long-term HIV survivors and caregivers in the province of BC. They did that over a three-year period. Here are some of the voices in a short video about the project. If one of our friends was there and they happened to be out and all of a sudden started not to feel well, then it would be up to us our friends to take that individual and make sure that they got home. We had to treat them as if they weren't 80 pounds, as if they could, you know, if they didn't need help cutting their food. That is some of the voices from HIV in my day. Uh, The lead on that project is Nathan Lachowski. He's an associate professor of of public health and social policy at the University of Victoria. And he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Tell me about the inspiration for this project. I was reading that, you know, I think if we look at sort of the history of that time, so much of it, and you pointed this out, it was centered in, in sort of the cities like Toronto and New York and San Francisco, but other areas we didn't know as much about how people lived through that, those early, those early days of the HIV AIDS pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the inspiration for the project really came from this aspect of being at this unique point in history where we are seeing those who did survive um, passing away, as you said in the introduction. And we know that the history is different out West um, than some of the other major urban centers. And so we wanted to be able to tell that story in the words of those who lived it. And we know that in the history that's been told and the documentaries that have been made, that certain kinds of people have been centered more than others. And so we wanted to make sure that we thought about whose voices really need to be lifted up um, before it's too late and before we lose these stories. 
Tell me about that, because again, I guess as whenever we look back at history, we notice the gaps, right? The hindsight is is always mm-hmm. prevalent. What what voices did you feel needed to be heard, and how did you go out to find them? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that Toon gay men were one of the groups predominantly affected here in North America, and particularly in those urban centers. Um, but there were a lot of other groups that were affected: during hemophiliacs, women, um, people living um, during uh, on the streets or who were unhoused, and during all of those groups had a different experience of the onset of AIDS and the onset of HIV. And so for us, we wanted to make sure that we took an approach that really centered people who lived that era. And we wanted to center those who were long-term survivors. But we also know that because of the devastating losses, there were many people who can't tell their story um, directly anymore. And so we wanted to include caregivers, people who took care of and made sure that um, between those people who were living with HIV and passing away from HIV were cared for. Um, And so those caregivers were an important part of the story. And we use this oral history approach because it is a feminist methodology that really is about balancing the record of history um, and really centering the voice of those who are marginalized from the historical record. Yeah, looking through some of the interviews you did, it, it really, really found some fascinating tales. And I gathered just from watching some of the people share them that they had been waiting a very long time to tell this story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stories are powerful. I mean, these are rich, um, intense periods of time um, for society, let alone for the individuals that were living them. And to be able to speak with over 100 folks. Um, from all different walks of life in different parts of uh, the province, I think was really rich. And it created this record that is, I think, a lot more complete and starts to really um, pick at some of those threads of things that were less talked about um, as part of the HIV response. And so we know lots about the direct action activism and the importance of those um, who are out on the streets during picketing government um, and asking for um, some kind of action. Um, and so you know, those stories have been told a little bit more, and we got interesting perspectives on some of the pers- some of the direct experiences at West. So, for example, during the government at one point was trying to force quarantine people who living, were living with HIV, and that isn't an experience that necessarily happened in other jurisdictions. And so, unlike our response to COVID, do you know what I mean? The, it was yeah. not just about government inaction; it was about opposition to the pandemic. Interesting. I mean, I grew up in Montreal. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that had been on the table in BC. Yeah, and I think this is one of those pieces where history is so localized. It's about the people Mm -hmm. and about the places and about the politics that were at play. Um, And we know that when we think about during how COVID has played out differently in different parts of the country, and we can see how different provinces reacted in different ways, and during there was different burdens of the infection, and during different impacts on the economy and social life, etc., and so in many ways, HIV has had a local story. Yes, you know, I mean, there's this global impact, and we're all connected globally to the, uh, to the massive loss, loss of life that has happened. Um, but we also have stories of resilience and resistance here. Um, and I think those are really powerful. When we start thinking about, you know, what do we take forward out of all of this loss, and what are some of the lessons learned? Um, and solidarity was a key piece, you know, working across difference to address um, during uh, any kind of inequity or any kind of injustice and was particularly important in HIV because there was a shared goal um, of trying to fight this virus. And when we think about current issues um, during like uh, anti-black racism or like reconciliation, during the solidarity we need to show across that work, it shouldn't just be from the people who are directly living it, um, but others that are affected as well. 
Yeah, I noticed that from from the conversations that were that you had that there were a lot of people who talked about that allyship that existed long before that word uh, was ever used. To be honest, and and it was it was really fascinating because I don't think s- sitting on the outside, I don't think it's something that was ever I ever fully comprehended. No, and I think there's some really beautiful stories um, during that. I think paint a whole picture of how how we got through that period of time. Um, during one of those was the ways in which people showed up to take care of each other. And these aren't during, they're not people who are on the streets necessarily and were holding placards. And these are people who were at the bedside or in people's homes or in bringing food during spending time, um, you're helping them live and maintain their humanity and their dignity. And that work was incredibly important to keeping activists well, to keeping people living with HIV well. Um, and so I think during their subtle ways in which people showed up for each other. And I mean, there's certainly stories in this um, project during that came forward in terms of how lesbian women, during how indigenous people and two-spirit people showed up um, during for their community uh, and really helped each other through the challenges that people were facing. Um, and I think these are important stories for people to reflect on who lived through it, um, but also for new generations that are coming up that don't have a direct experience having lived through HIV. I think it's such a poignant memory for people who were alive at the time um, but for these new generations of folks who are from communities affected by HIV or for young people who are living with HIV now, this is one of the ways that we're trying to make sure they get a comprehensive and accurate telling of their own histories related to HIV. And there's a wall and it's got a whole bunch of names of people that have died and so many of those people, names like the names I know who they were, these people, right? And, and it's, I have a hard time reading that wall. I should hold them. I could hear them just fall apart (laughs) and I just got up and went to work Voices from HIV in My Day. This is an oral history project uh, by researchers at the University of Victoria trying to capture the voices, the stories, the experiences of those who lived through the early days of the HIV AIDS pandemic in British Columbia, um, looking at it from a new perspective as well, trying to capture perhaps voices that weren't heard as often back then uh, to try to tell a more complete history of that time uh, for generations to come, for generation now and generations to come. Um, with us is Nathan Lachowski. He's the project lead. He's an associate professor of public health and social policy at the University of Victoria. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, but you feel like this is still very relevant to today, that there's a lot to learn here. Absolutely. I mean, we've been managing with the HIV pandemic for 40 years, and it's one of our first global pandemics during in, in our recent era that has really taught us a lot about what public health is, um, during what the impacts of stigma and discrimination are on a medical condition. And you know, all of those stories are sadly still quite relevant uh, for things our world are facing today. Yeah, you mentioned specifically sort of the, the difference in response to, or at least specifically the response to the opioid crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the HIV response is that I mean, really it has largely um, been masked in terms of the beginning as government inaction or government opposition or resistance. Um, and when we think about the toxic drug supply, um, I mean, this has been something that the government has been called on to take action and to exert their policy force where they can to try and address this. And so we have examples with COVID where doing things that were not thought possible before COVID seem to then be able to get mobilized and then to happen. So, I mean, part of this is about where political value and will um, really shapes action by a government um, and also how communities who are affected show up um, for each other and for advocacy to try and make action happen. 
And also, I guess, in some senses, how quickly government moves when something is impacting a population that is not necessarily uh, the mainstream population, or is not seen as being the mainstream population. Absolutely. And this is where the kind of stigma of HIV uh, persists. I mean, we often talk about the groups that are during most predominantly affected, but HIV is something that it can affect anyone. And you know, there are people of all ages, of all races, of all genders, of all sexual orientations that are living with HIV, uh, many even in our own home communities. And so this invisibility or the preference to focus on certain kinds of groups being impacted is part of the resistance to actually making sure that we have a good public health response to HIV that makes sure that everyone has access to treatments, um, to support, you know what I mean, and can live in a stig- stigma-free um, uh, world that is, they're not going to be discriminated on based on their, their HIV status. What did, what stood out for you in these interviews? I mean, you did, that's, that's, that's a, you know, those are a lot of stories that you heard and a, a lot of very personal, very intimate stories. Did, what surprised you the most about what you ended up finding out? I think the ways in which people still manage to find humor and humanity, despite all of the challenge. Um, and this wasn't just a challenge on an individual level or an interpersonal level, and there was incredible loss, but um, people were incredibly resilient. And without the internet and without necessarily the same access to information, people were able to share resources, make connections, and, and manage their lives despite all of that. And I think that was incredibly powerful for me as a younger person kind of learning about that history. Um, and the other is how community organizations really stood up and filled the gap that governments left. Um, during, these are organizations that formed by people in the communities and who cared for people in the communities and provided services and supports that the government was not doing. Um, and so I think that those two things really stood out for me as particularly poignant. Yeah, I, th- I think back then too, I think back to those days before social media, before so on. I mean, a lot of this went on um, in the shadows, to be frank. Uh, you know, people didn't know what was going on. It was something that people didn't talk about very much. It was sort of activism without any, there was no, like, there was, you know, there, it, was, it was unrecognized for a very long time. And it feels like maybe that's the, the, the lesson that's so different from today. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, our information systems are so different with social media and the internet and texting. I and mean, all of those things didn't exist at the onset of AIDS. And I mean, the same challenges around misinformation and who to trust still persist, but I think there are some differences in what kind of technologies are available to us. And part of um, during those lessons, while there's difference in the environment, some of the underlying lessons are still important. And that's really why in this project, we wanted to take these stories and turn them into something that people could digest, could um, experience and could react to. And, and that was kind of the impetus behind developing this In My Day verbatim theater project that is uh, during one of the, the recent outputs from the, from the research project. Yeah, uh, tell me about that, because this is going to hit the stage now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's World AIDS Day today, and the play premieres tomorrow. Um, it's being featured at the Colch in Vancouver, um, and it's running for about a two-week run. Um, and so anyone who's in the area that's interested in um, taking it up, you can tell your friends and please come and watch it. But it's basically um, uh, a verbatim project, which means it takes the words directly from the storytellers in the research project. And Rick Waynes, the uh, incredible playwright behind this, who's one of the participants, and a part of our team, wove those stories together into a narrative and into a theatrical piece. And so it puts the stories on stage, raises them up in the ways that we really want to, um, and gives people um, an artistic kind of interpretation of what exactly went down and, and what was experienced. And, and I think it's going to be a really powerful way in which people can kind of engage in this history um, and meaning making uh, for themselves. Yeah. Have you managed to see any of the, have you managed to get, catch a glimpse of it just to see what it's like to see those words presented in that way it must be 
it must be different and yet very powerful. I will say as an epidemiologist, I've stayed out of the artistic production piece, but I've right. learned a lot along the way, which I'm grateful for. The beauty of community-based research um, is that these relationships and these kinds of things just evolve quite organically. But I've seen a few little glimpses as the play has been produced and the script has been developed. We've had a committee for anti-racism and equity um, as part of the research project that's given a lens of analysis to the play to make sure that things like representation and diversity uh, during all of those really important concepts are held well. Um, in the play and in the production. And so I'm excited. It'll be the first time I get to see it on Saturday um, in its full glory. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. And what next for the project? Is, is this it? Has it? Does it wrap with these 120 or nearly 120 or do you continue? I mean, my feeling around all of this community-based research is that we follow the will of the community. And mm-hmm. as we've talked more and more about this project, other people in the country have reached out to us to say, oh, wow, that's really cool. And during, I'm from a part of this country that also hasn't told this story. Um, during, and, or I'm from a particular community that hasn't been forefronted in the, in the telling of the story. So we are planning next year to have a gathering um, in Quebec City at the National HIV Conference to talk about oral history and storytelling within the HIV movement and to see what is of interest to people. And so we'll follow the community guidance and, and do what they ask us to do. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a fascinating project. Much appreciated. I think if people want to go look for it, the UVic website is probably the easiest place to track it down, I believe. Absolutely. If you Google HIV in my day, uh, UVic, that'll be the easiest way to find information about it. Well, uh, congratulations on the play. I guess it'll be exciting on Saturday night. And thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much, man. Keep up.